Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, we want to welcome everyone back to the Determined Truth Podcast. My name is Rob Darrimple, and my uh, co-host, Vinny Angelo, is not going to be able to be with us today, so we're going to be missing Vinny uh, and his great good insights. But today, we have a wonderful guest that I'm extremely excited to present, uh, Mimi Haddad. Uh, Mimi serves as the president and CEO of CBE, which is Christians for Biblical Equality International. She's also an adjunct and associate professor of historical theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. She's a graduate of the University of Colorado and uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, summa cum laude. She has a PhD in historical theology from the University of Durham in England. She's an award-winning author. She's written more than 100 academic and popular and blog articles, and she's been uh, contributed over 15 books. She's taught at colleges and seminaries around the world. She serves as a gender and theology consultant with World Relief, with World Vision International, uh, and Faith Beyond Borders, and also SASA, which I need to ask you about that, Mimi, uh, Mimi what that means. Um, but uh, Mimi writes, teaches, and speaks on matters related to development, justice, faith, and gender. Mimi and her husband, Dale, live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota and are involved in local ministry. So thank you, Mimi, for joining us. Thank you. And, and what is SASA? It just stands for Salsa Faith, and it's another NGO working in places like Haiti uh, and and sort of in, you know, regions that are isolated to one culture and dialect. Mm. All right, wonderful. So Mimi, let's just begin uh, today by telling us a little bit more about yourself and, and about uh, CBE uh, and, and your work. Sure. Yeah, well, I'm the daughter of immigrants and uh, our goal, my parents' goal when they arrived in the U.S. was survival. Mm. <laughs> and the uh, my parents, my father especially, who's from Lebanon, wanted to raise his daughters in a country where gender did not limit vocation or opportunities. And he was pretty surprised at the church's pushback on ideas of agency and voice um, for women in the U.S. And he wasn't terribly thrilled to see me go into church work, but but he thoroughly supports what I do as my mother does. Um, so I came into this with a really strong father who uh, would take me out to the tennis court every weekend and just teach me strategy, aggression, um, stamina, and he'd say, play like an athlete, not like a housewife, which of mm. course sort of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so he was socializing, my mom and my dad were socializing us in ways that were very atypical for evangelical communities. And then I went to college in Boulder, Colorado, where I joined a very conservative, it was a great mm -hmm. Baptist church, but it was part of the conservative Baptist convention. And the pastor there was, in fact, a flaming egalitarian. And so it was very hard to decide, you know, women and men had equal worth and equal agency and equal calling. And I remember as my best friend was going off to with her husband who's doing a PhD in engineering, he was holding on to the window of the car saying, you've got to teach the Bible. You're the strongest Bible teacher we have. I know that you're a woman, but you've got to teach the Bible. And so he, he was very, um, one of the early members of CBE I found out later on. And so he just set this precedent as my family did for 
vibrant life to do what God has gifted you and called you to do with every cell of your being. And these obstacle, theological obstacles were not really in the way too much. And it really wasn't until, um, you know, post undergrad, I began to encounter more of these obstacles. And I would love discussing why they're here. What do they mean? And it wasn't until I, I just said, you know, I've really got to go to seminary and figure out why so much of the church has such a hard time with women being embodied females and what that leads to. So I ended up at Gordon-Conwell. I ended up on student council. I did my New Testament at Harvard. I met Catherine Crager there. She was the first president of CBE. And I was on student council and I presented her CV to the board of directors. Um, which uh, they were thrilled to learn more about her because at the time they had a hard, they were struggling to figure out who, what women could join faculty and they hired her and she did amazing work. And then she put my CV in front of the board of directors of CBE and they hired me. So I joined the faculty amid a PhD, the University of Durham. So I was really busy working on completing this doctorate and launching some initiatives at CBE. That's how it got started. Wow, wonderful. Okay, wonderful. Now, um, tell us a little bit more about the work of CBE and what you do in, in particular. And by the way, uh, the word use the word egalitarian. Uh, the word egalitarian, just for those who are listening and don't know, is the idea that men and women are equal uh, in authority and role and responsibility and giftings within the body of Christ, uh, as opposed to a complementarian, which is almost a misnomer, isn't it? Uh, um, uh, uh, use the complementarian view is the idea that male is the superior and the head over, over female within the church. So tell us a little bit about the work of CBE and, and, and what you do and, and, and bring us some awareness on that. Sure. Uh, CBE or Christian Straight uh, Biblical Equality is the largest uh, standing, longest standing egalitarian organization that teaches from Genesis to Revelation the most surprising people held the most astonishing positions of leadership that you cannot look at someone and determine their gifts calling mm. this is something that is not discernible to humans it's only empowered through christ and the holy spirit so cbe produces two journals a popular academic journal a weekly blog we hold events in the u.s and abroad every year except for covid we have local chapters around the world and we are a publishing house. We won, I don't know, maybe over 50 awards for our publishing, academic and popular. So uh, we work with partnerships on every continent. <clears throat> and the work of CVE has definitely evolved beside the egalitarian community. Initially, the work of egalitarians starting way back in the 1800s with feminists like Sojourner Truth and then Barry Smith. Pandita Ramabai, Catherine Booth, Catherine Bushnell. The, the issues were social justice. They watched in the late 1800s, they were battling women's suffrage, they were battling emancipation for women and slaves, and they were very involved in dismantling sex trafficking, often the result of poorly translated passages in the Bible, which Catherine Bushnell goes into in her beautiful book, God's Word to Women. They were teaching women and men how to read Greek, and they were bringing evidence about women trafficked in our country to state legislatures uh, and government agencies. This was often obstructed by police and government agents. 
And they saw this relationship between the demeaning of women by religious authorities and their marginalization and abuse in wider culture. Because if you can speak for God, that's the most power you can have. And so they started this process of translating the Bible accurately from the Greek and Hebrew in using words that better represented the historic context of the Bible. And that process really fell into a state of, I want to say, animated suspension during World War I and World War II and was picked up again in the 50s and very much embraced by the early founders of CBE, who were all in their 80s when they launched this organization because they were shocked at how extreme the pink and blue culture of the Christian churches had evolved after World War II. And, and so our work has been academic and popular. We have worked very strenuously beside chapters our own and other partners around the world to dismantle Christian patriarchy where it has been particularly vitriolic, which is pretty much everywhere. And so we were headed to the UK where male headship teachings had become a little bit more high octane. The, the trick has been, you just follow the money. Wherever there's a lot of money and a lot of power, there's a lot of male headship teachings. Uh, that's certainly the case in India uh, with uh, the religious teachings there. It's the case in the Middle East. Wherever there's a lot of money, there's a lot of power and women fall at the short end. They're not equals. And, and it's certainly the case in the United States, Sydney, Manhattan, London. These are places with a lot of money and lots of male headship teachings. So uh, we were headed to England. There's many NGOs in London, uh, lots of great theologians. We are partnering with them. This will now be live in September on our website. You can participate from any corner of the world online. So. Uh, initially, egalitarians worked on Bible words, what do they mean in their context, how have they been translated either well or poorly. We began to look then more in the 90s around what do these words mean as aggregates and themes and systems in the Bible. The Trinity came to the fore at that point. Does Jesus submit to right. God the Father? That's right. a thematic, systematic question that had daily consequences for women. I still get into arguments with people or discussions about that. And now we've come to a place where we're really poised to look at the humanitarian fallout relative to Christian patriarchy or any religious patriarchy. I love your focus on that, Rob, because it's something, it's the fruit, right, of the fall, the he will rule over you right. sin. So that's where we are now, we work in these humanitarian communities, doing some really good research, um, which we hope to publish soon. Wow, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, and for those who are listening, I've written a series of blogs on my um, uh, Patheo site, uh, just look up Determined Truth, and uh, on women and justice, I think 15 of them, and really <laughs> dealing with the biblical passages, because for someone like myself, Mimi, I think a little bit, I know you, little, little, you know a little bit of my background, but I grew up in a conservative evangelical Southern Baptist church that said men are authorities over women. What's interesting, by the way, a side note is I, I didn't realize until later that the Southern Baptist Convention actually ordained women about 10 years before I, I became a Southern Baptist. You know, in the 60s and 70s, they were ordaining women. And, and then the conservatives took over in the 80s and 90s and said, no, no more, no more of that. But I grew up that way. So, so for me, this was a scriptural question, right? This is a biblical, okay, how do I deal with the scriptures? And 
And, you know, the fear of evangelicalism is, well, uh, if you adopt the idea that women are equal, then that just opens the door to liberalism, right? And, you know, and, and all those things as well. Um, but what was shocking to me, and there's a couple of really significant things I want to bring out here in our conversation, was how much injustice there is uh, uh, women face on a daily basis, not only in American culture, but, but globally. Could you speak a little bit uh, to this? Because I think so many people like myself are probably just ignorant about this. Uh, yeah. The struggles yeah, of Rob, women. Yeah, Rob, I think it was you that said that the injustices that women face um, is really one of the most significant justice issues in the world. Yeah, I did, yeah. I, I want to thank you for that statement. And, you know, you say, well, maybe I'm, you know, I'm just, it's an ignorant question, but um, how can we understand the struggles women face in society in the world? And I think you're absolutely right. Um, and so if you will tolerate a little bit of church history, in mm -hmm. it, I think it sets the stage okay. to enforce what you are doing or, you know, amplify that. The injustices of the women <clears throat> really gained attention in around the 1990s, mid-1990s, by the work not of a Christian, but of this brilliant economist by the name of Amartya Sen. Uh, he was uh, working in India, and he was a mathematic, mathematician, and he uh, demonstrated that 100 million females were missing from the planet. Now, yeah, he's, yeah. Okay, so he's really well known in humanitarian circles. For his work, he received a Nobel Prize in economics, and he established what we call a gender lens in that field, which helps us assess human, the humanitarian impact of these, uh, what is leading to this humanitarian impact? Because these women have been annihilated and misplaced, displaced, I should say. So he he was the first to demonstrate skewed gender ratios, but of course this work was corroborated by the UN, by the Gates Foundation, by Christoph and Wu Dunn in their book um, mm -hmm. *Half the Sky*. Now, now, why should that date be significant to you as a Southern Baptist? It was at that time, early in the 1990s, that the fundamentalists or, or the male headship thinkers took over the Southern Baptist Convention, which right. is the largest Protestant denomination uh, in the United States, also the richest and most influential. At the time, and it all happened really quickly, the decision was made, the faith and um, message was, was issued, and they began removing women from positions of leadership. And that's the Baptist publication, just so those who don't know. Yeah, Southern Baptist publication. Go ahead. Sorry about can that. You, and can you reiterate the title, please? Faith and message. Thank you. Yeah. So this, um, th they adopted male headship only model of leadership. They removed women from their institutes, from their churches, and from positions of leadership around the world where they were close allies to the world's women and children and their families. By doing that and replacing it only with male leaders, they, they uh, uh, dampened the voice of the world's women and they distanced their allies and women, the world's women from necessary resources and advocacy. It had horrific humanitarian consequences. The UN stepped in to fill the gap with their status, their commission on the status of women who corroborated the data of um, Amartya Sen in many ways. 
And as we know, when leadership teams are comprised only of men, the output is lower ethical practices and lower efficiencies. So wow. These are not efficient teams and they're not ethical teams because they fuel, they fuel, right? The problems that John Pryor documents in his research on Me Too, right? Why are, men, why are certain men more prone to be sexual predators? And Pryor says four things happen when you, uh, in these communities that are predatorial. They lack empathy. They are known for their dominance, impunity, and their strict gender roles, right? And this is what we see in uh, communities that are abusive. Southern Baptists have had their fallout, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's also fueled by porn. Now, skip forward from 1995 to present day, 200 million women are believed to be missing. And this is part mm. of the result of the World Wide Web, the dark web, and these four qualities, impunity and lack of empathy, dominance and gender roles is, are very much prevalent in the extreme or the, of the porn that we see that's nurturing and uh, fueling a demand for sex trafficking and sex workers. So every night, listeners, every night before you put your head on your pillow, ask the Lord to shut down the dark web. Mm. But go to the roots. The roots are bad religious teachings, bad Christian teachings, and the fact that churches don't usually address porn from the pulpit. I know it's not addressed in premarital counseling, in marriage counseling. It's... it's um, and one of the reasons we believe is that, as Barna has shown and Proven Men Ministries has shown, Christian men are watching porn at equal rates to the population. Mm. Uh, and this is, um, so our own doorstep needs some cleaning. I, I led a, a lecture of this in a, a denomination where, as I started to talk about these statistics, I saw heads drop. And it was, um, it's it just, so, so that's just the background. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, when I started doing research for, for the writing that I was doing there, I was amazed first off to come across the, the, the work of this Indian uh, scholar who said a hundred million women are missing. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, based on you know, the data, there should be a hundred more million more women. Where are they gone? And obviously uh, that brings up a, a, whole, a whole issue. And I think, I think a lot of listeners might, might go, well, okay, I'm aware of the fact that uh, sexual injustice and and um, uh, these uh, these places in the Middle East or places in in, in Indonesia and everywhere else where you know women are enslaved and they're, and they're sex trafficked. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, but speak some more now about about bring it home to us in in, in American churches. What what are some of the things that the discriminations and and, and suffering that women face there? Well, if you have male leadership teams, you have a, a lack of empathy. Right. And they, uh, women are experiencing, um, they're not believed, they're not trusted. They come forward and they say, this has happened to me. And right. This is not validated. I think things are changing mercifully in God's providence. But churches that model uh, male leadership, only male leadership, women struggle um, to use their gifts. And so Barna has shown they're leaving the church to use their gifts elsewhere. It's no longer an appealing community to them. 
all male leadership hurts women and girls. It hurts really everyone. Right. Churches without women leadership have, as we said, overall, they're not as productive or ethical. This comes from the Peterson Institute that documents this in businesses and industry. They're more vulnerable to the being to events. These problems are self-perpetuating, even as culture, secular culture, embraces egalitarian practices, inclusive language, experiences from women, modeling women leadership, uh, proactive programming to bring women into places where they're absent. Churches unwilling to open leadership opportunities to women lose God's gifts in women intended, intended to bring the, make the very good gospel sound really good. I mean, we are viewed as uh, oppressive to women and that hurts the witness of the gospel. Now I have some examples, two examples that I like to cite. One is a friend of mine who I know uh, from her work in college ministry. She was a, a partner in college ministry with a, a male and he would get opportunities to preach from churches that uh, would support them and she rarely did. One day she took me aside and just said, all these missed opportunities that Jim gets and I don't get tell me that people look at me and say, you know, there's something really wrong with being female. There's nothing wrong with the work I do because I lead people to Christ just as much as Jim. But me as a person, me as an agent of the gospel is not valued to quite the extent that Jim is. Wow. And I was teaching at Urbana not so long ago and a woman who came to the US to study, to do a PhD in law from a, a country in the global South came, waited to speak to me and said, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a leader in my field in my country, but I have absolutely no voice in my church. In fact, if I get married in my denomination, my husband will do all the speaking on our behalf. And she said, I just won't be party to injustice. And that to me is injustice. And it really, I really think it casts such a, a bleak view of our faith mm -hmm. and the women who, who led, led Christianity so bravely. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I wrote in my blogs as well that when you start looking at the scriptures, number one, the, the whole tenor of the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing about was to, uh, to bring relief to those who are marginalized and those who are oppressed. You know, and yet uh, here we are on the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, oppressing them and not realizing that we're oppressing them. And, and what's always worse is that when the oppression has this biblical justification, right? Okay, well, this is the way God made it. You know, and, and, and I remember uh, Bill Gates, and, and some listeners might not like this uh, analogy, but, but Bill Gates was speaking, I think, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and of course, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they had the women on one side and the men, you know, taking up 75% of, of it on the other side, right? And, and he was asked the question, you know, uh, what can we do to, to advance and to become, you know, uh, more industrious and everything else? And he says, well, he says, um, once you eliminate 50% of your population from being involved in the whole process, you've already, you've, you've handicapped yourself. Uh, and, and the tragedy is, is that, that when you read the scriptures, it's the fact that the gospel says that, that we're all members of this one body and that we've all been gifted. And I think this is what, this is what you were getting at. We, we all have these gifts from the spirit. And then we don't allow 50% of our population within the church to actually utilize their gifts. Well, right. we do if they're gifts of hospitality, right, or service, but we don't when they're gifts of leadership. Uh, and, and I find that uh, uh, just quite um, depressing a little bit, you know, and, and realizing what women are going through. So, um, uh, yeah. Now, one of the things that you, that you were kind of alluding to earlier and that was really 
convicting for me uh, as well was the fact that the theology that says that patriarchal, right? The theology that says that male are in authority over, over female, how that actually is then translated to the cultures around the world that leads to the global oppression, oppression of women. Right. You want to speak to that a little bit, how, how there's a sense of our theology actually makes us ultimately responsible for, for, for what's happening. Well, I mean, uh, so Jimmy Carter's book called Action does a marvelous job of speaking to this in our own country. But working around the world, um, when the Western church sneezes, the rest of the world catches pneumonia. Mm. And so we are viewed as heroes and we're viewed as, um, I don't want to say, I, I want to say we are so grossly respected. Um, and when we go to countries, you know, and we've had to learn this in our humanitarian work, right? We go to a country and everybody wants to build a basketball court. No one in that country has ever seen basketball, but they'll build a basketball court because the power differential between the U.S and their country or their community is so vast that as you study cultures, the last thing they'll do, a culture that is at the really tail end of the power spectrum is to challenge the ideas or the views of people at the top end. So Westerners ipso facto have an incredible voice of authority wherever they go. And research, now this is just, this, uh, this hasn't been published, but I, I remember talking to church planters who have told me that when pastors treat women as second-class citizens without voice, without agency, those are the communities where sex trafficking, the sex trafficking wow. are very, because they know that the, the, um, these are the communities that are least likely to resist the sale of their children. Wow. One humanitarian put it this way, when we treat people as less, it gives everyone, especially the, you know, the person in leadership, pastor, when you treat them as less, you give everyone around permission to do the same. Carter established that in his book called Action. Missionaries I've worked with have established that in their church planning practices, that when you, when you as a, a person, a, a follower of God, a man or a woman of God, a man of God, allow that to happen, it has significant impact. Ideas have consequences. Behavior has consequences for leaders. And so they, this is done by misrepresenting the teachings of the Bible. You know, I, I think you're going to talk about this, or you have talked about this, where, you know, when you've challenged so-called complementarians who assert male leadership, you know, you challenge them on their biblical ideas. I think you have found, like I have, they've done very little reading by egalitarians. Right. Now, why is that? I mean, I remember speaking to a man who was very much in at the head of a Bible translation team, the most one of the most popular English Bible translations. And I just said to him, you know, I love you dearly. You're a brother in Christ. I respect you. I love your writings. But how, what have you read by egalitarians that has so persuaded you to remain in the male headship camp? And he said, well, I read like this one article a mm -hmm. while back. 
that was when I went, you know, I'm going to start asking this question more and more. Mm. They are not reading what I have found one person in equals one. I have, they're not doing the research. Mm-hmm. They're comfortable with the status quo, but they're not women. Yeah. Right. And you can't, you can't ultimately challenge a, a viewpoint when you actually are never listening to the other side. Right. You know, one of the first skills of peacemaking is many of you know, I do a lot of work with the Middle East uh, is to listen. Uh, you have to listen to the other side. So interesting on that, because what got me kind of thinking about this question, I just grew up patriarchal and that's just the way it was. And that's what the Bible said. And there was no reason to question this. And and of course, anybody on the other side was a liberal and you didn't listen to them anyways, right? So so why bother? But I began in in my PhD work, I began realizing I'm reading women scholars who are helping me understand what the book of Revelation says. That's my, my area. Uh, and, and I can take what these women scholars say, and I can go deliver a sermon on Sunday, but they can't. And I just thought, that doesn't make any sense. They, 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 they actually know more than I do. They're the ones teaching me. And that got me, got, got me rethinking. And then I worked with a woman, uh, Roberta Hestinus. I'm not sure if, if you know Roberta, you, might, you may. And uh, we hired Roberta to be our executive director, or our first president at a seminary that we were starting up in the Bay Area. And she was mentoring me. And I just realized this doesn't make any sense that, that I can t- say what, what she's telling me, but she can't say it. And that forced me to go, okay, let me go back to the scriptures now and think, uh, what, what is it saying? And I began just reading then going, okay, just because without that being forced to, to, to re-examine my thoughts, I probably never, never, never would have. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting there uh, how that works. And, and, you know, my first uh, blog in the series on justice was maybe I'm the problem, right? Maybe I'm the blame. And I don't think a lot of people reading it go, oh, you know, wow, really cool. Rob's, you know, admitting some fault. But I don't realize how many of them think, realize how much they too are at fault because of this general attitude of you are inferior and what that does to our girls and our kids, let alone to women in general. Yeah, but my course that I teach at Fuller, Women in History and Theology, which is going to go online this fall, is uh, all about, you know, building empathy and awareness of history, right? You've got to do really good history, right? Because those who teach, those who capture the past control the future. You've got to do your history, right? And you've got to build empathy. You, You have to convince people that they, what they know is not all that they should know. They don't know what... Oh, no. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I, I was preaching a sermon um, six months ago or so before I, before I stepped down from my last position on uh, women and, and the, the importance of women in the church. And I had just, my son had just given birth to our first granddaughter. Mm. And as I was closing in prayer, I was just, I was like, what kind of world are we bringing this girl into, right? What, what is she, and what's my responsibility in this um, world uh, um, to, to speak into this? Yeah, so. well, we have found that men who have daughters or granddaughters are the most, they seem to have the closest connection mm. uh, to feminist thinking. It's very interesting mm. research. It's not so much their wives, although sometimes it is, but more often than not, they are most visceral with their daughters. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it was a year ago. I could have been even a little longer than that. We had um, 
the the famed incident, at least I think you'll probably be aware of it. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners will be aware of it, where, where John MacArthur was on a stage. Um, I don't know how many people were in the audience, but there was hundreds in the audience. And and they said, OK, we're going to play a game, uh, one word association. And and uh, and you give me a response. And so they and they said, Beth Moore and John MacArthur said, go home now. My first thought to that was, wait a minute, this isn't even a Christian way to respond at all, period. Regardless of whether you think men are, are superior to women and, and women's role in the church, you simply don't ridicule, mock um, uh, somebody else in the body of Christ. Um, and yet, not only did it was this, it was the initial response, which just tells you what his thinking deep down is, right? His, his attitude towards women. Um, but it, it was the fact that everyone in the audience began laughing. Oh, yeah. And I thought, what a shame that, that it's okay to treat other people this way and, and speak towards other people this way. So uh, I, I would imagine you would say this is just something that's just common that women have to deal with on a regular basis, though, in the church, isn't it? Well, I would say that was pretty extreme. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there it, it certainly think the go home uh, let's call it mentality is uh, very, very much alive and well, but in more subtle nuanced ways. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. My Auntie Mona uh, in Beirut is a leader in her community. When the first civil war broke out, she was your go-to person if someone was kidnapped or in trouble. She walks into her Southern Baptist church and she's She's persona, not persona non grata, but she's mm -hmm. fairly well silenced. I think they do want her to go home. Mm -hmm. And she's been working for change socially and for the betterment of women and girls all of her life. She can't do it in the church very much. She can in subtle ways. So in the go home atmosphere, it pushes women like her to very limited spheres of service, which she's very faithful over, very faithful. But I think she has a lot more to offer. Right. And so I did write a blog on that, um, October 2019. What was grossly disturbing about his comments was that they were always integrated with racist comments. Mm. So he, you know, he talks about the you know she is not welcome and she did obviously leave the southern baptist convention recently mm -hmm. because of the go home and abusive tendencies she saw that her church did not speak out against so i think you know beth is she's a prophet she she has a very clear grasp of scripture and mm -hmm. she i think she do very much uh, as she said regrets Regrets uh, not challenging it years ago. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, and for those who are listening, whether you agree that women should be teaching or preaching in the church or, or not, the reality is, you know, I mean, she has had a significant impact upon women uh, and, and uh, teaching women. And uh, no matter what your biblical view is, you're not going to find anything in scripture that says women can't teach other women. So um, for her to have a, a teaching role, I, I was asked, um, our women's ministry at the church I was at a, a number of years ago, uh, was going to do a study, a Beth Moore study in the book of Revelation. And so they said, Rob, you know, would you at least review the curriculum? And then, and uh, I think it was a seven week study that Beth Moore did, and they had an eight week slot. So they said, Rob, how about if you do week one, 
and kind of set the context for us. And then we'll have seven weeks of Beth Moore. And I reviewed her stuff and I'm, I'll tell you, she was, she was fair. She, she was, I don't agree with everything that she had to say in the book of revelation, but obviously I don't agree with a lot of, a lot of what mainstream evangelicals say about the book, but, but she actually did her homework. She said, okay, well, some say this and some say this, and she represented each of the sides fairly. Um, and I thought she was great. And even if she's only teaching women, again, there's just no place for this go home uh, mentality. Um, it, it's it's uh, so uh, it, it's well, so disconcerting. Well, it just represents these, you know, leadership connected to specific spheres, and hers is the home. And mm. those gendered spheres are the very thing that get them into trouble with impunity, lack of empathy, dom, mm-hmm. and abuse. Right, and that's and that's what I want to make sure that that we get across here today in this conversation is the fact that this is leading to serious injustices that women are facing. You know, my daughter's going to face this, my granddaughter, my wife, uh, you know, uh, our brothers and our sisters, our mothers, our wives, you know, um, that they are suffering as a result of our ideological convictions and theological convictions. Right, right. When Christ, the Apostle Paul said, take every thought captive Mm, to Christ. Right. And I think um, it is, we as a church have, are becoming increasingly illiterate biblically. This is a trend that has been in place since the Billy Graham uh, Institute on the campus of Wheaton was launched. They invited Charles Malik from Lebanon to give the opening address. It's one of the best things you'll ever hear. He hmm. was general secretary who shaped the team that draft human rights declaration that was published by the United Nations. He was a devout believer. He would mention the word of Jesus and just start weeping. And he devoted his life and his incredible intellect to challenging injustices as a Christian. Mm-hmm. But since the fundamentalist modernist controversy, we've backed away from some of that important work. Part of it, you know, is had has led to a dumbing down of Christian faith and practice because they did not want to read. The fundamentalists backed away from vigorous intellectual engagement that so characterized the modernists. And so there was this anti-intellectual element and Charles Malik said, he said, we have lost our place of leadership in key fields. Mm -hmm. In the front row of that lecture, was, Char- was Mark Knoll, who went home and wrote the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Oh, wow. So, wow. So work, the work that you are doing, Rob, is so important. Well, you know, I, I mean, my first response becomes, and I'm sorry, right? Because I was part of the process. I was part of the problem for so, much, for so many years. And um, that's the same thing with my work in the Middle East too, right? It began with an I'm sorry, because I, I went there and I saw injustice happening and I'm like, wait a minute, no one told me about this. This is not the, the narrative I, I, I was told about Israel and Palestine and what was going on. And I just sat on a bus and I wept because I realized I was at fault. And, and the same thing happened, of course, once I started investigating the issue of women and I'm doing some blogs now on, this, on the issue of, of racism as well. And, and, and my, my ignorance is not um, a, a, a good enough excuse for uh, for, for what happened. So I'm sorry that people like myself have made your work more, more difficult. And now if I can just do anything, it's just to be a voice to say, hey, listen, okay, let's, 
let's at least talk. Let's at least think. Let's at least listen. Let's at least begin to process this. And I hope what, what I represent is the fact that you can hold to a view of equality between genders and not be a flaming radical, you know, liberal, whatever it might be, that, that, I, that I keep myself in the midst of, of evangelical for that reason there. So, so Mimi, how can um, our listeners, and we'll put a, a lot of stuff in the show notes, some of the links and the things that we've mentioned in the show notes, how can we follow your work, be more involved um, yeah. uh, there? And then also, um, what would you say for someone that's maybe listening that hasn't taken the steps that I've taken in the last couple of years, even and say, where would you tell them to start? What, 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 do you, what do you recommend that they begin? Well, start talking to the women in your communities and okay. ask them, you know, what are your thoughts on the language you, we use for people and the mm. hymns that we sing? And, you know, uh, one scholar involved with CVE said, yes, we sing, rise up, O men of God, but then mm. we know women have to do these, this translation in their mind, mm. the word men on a door means they're not welcome, but rise up, O men is inclusive. So ask about inclusive language, ask about the music, um, you know, ask women if, if their experiences are, are validated and do sermons include mm. examples of their contributions in history and faith life. You know, find out um, where in your community, where women alone are working and where, where men are working alone and see if you can't bring some diversity to those teams, that's really important. Be sure that your church is addressing architecture. How many bathrooms do you have for women versus men? That's a really big issue. Interesting. Oh. Yep. Find out, you know, how many stalls in a bathroom and where they're located. Sometimes the women's women's bathroom is quite a hike compared to the men's bathroom. Architecture speaks loudly of values. Ask about do you talk about porn in from the pulpit mm -hmm. and throughout church curriculum and and in premarital um, mm. teachings? Uh, are there places where women can share their experiences in safety in a team of women who will hear them and validate them? Do you let women speak and teach as much as men? These are things that are just, you know, the, the Evangelical Covenant Church has a develop a Deborah project, which is very intentional about giving women voice, agency, developing women who show potential for leadership as, as young in their youth. And, you know, continue to look at injustices women face around the world. They face them here in the U.S. and in their own churches. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, going back for just a second, you know, a sign that of the problem, you, know, you look at the Willow Creek um, debacle and when the women came out they were immediately no this can't be true um and it was only because the women were of such repute, repute they had such a good reputation that that some individuals began saying you know i don't think all these women are making this up you know um but it's interesting that that when when these accusations are, are leveled whether it's in a home domestically or whether it's in the church our immediate response is to go no no that can't be true and and we don't and, and that's what the Me Too movement's about, I think, as, as well, right? Is wait a minute, these women are even afraid to speak up because that because they don't feel like it's even safe. I don't know a single woman, and I know a lot of women who have not had a Me Too experience. A what experience? A Me Too experience. Okay. I I do not know one. Hmm. I don't know one woman. Now it, it's not to say it was an assault, but it was some kind of sexual harassment, verbal, 
physical. Uh, it's it's so prevalent. It's so much part of the ether we live in, in the world. And in, you know, when you think about the U.S., we think, oh, okay, so Willow Creek, how could, well, the U.S. is incredibly patriarchal, right? We rank 87 in the, among the nations of the world for uh, women's participation as parliamentarian leaders. If you study the data that's collected by the catalyst, they will show you that we, we view ourselves as enlightened, and yet we have these ga gaping uh, holes in our awareness. Now, Denmark is one of the most egalitarian countries in the world. And when the men in Denmark were interviewed as to, what do you think the rate of women's harassment in culture really is? They were 30% lower than the actual rate. So we just take, CBE is done on intercultural IDI evaluation of our leaders to see how alert we are to racism in our ranks. And we tested out um, uh, the, where we believe that we had far more awareness and skill than we really actually have. And that's a very uh, dangerous position to be in. So just undergoing evaluation, self-examining. Wittgenstein, right, the great modern theologian said, it's almost impossible to be self-aware. Mm -hmm. And just to, to constantly challenge yourself with getting that feedback, doing those, bringing independent metrics in to study uh, your awareness of other is, is just, it's just crazy because we, we think we know more than we really do. Yeah, we sure do. And we, and, and we like it that way too, um, <laughs> un unfortunately. And, and, and yeah, it's a, uh, um, it's, it's a statement that says, you know, if God has given or, or God has allowed um, the Western evangelical or the Western church to be so powerful, so influential, etc., we need to use that power and, and that influence for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and it's, it was so shocking to me again to say, to say it again, that how much we've imported around the world patriarchal-ness, um, et cetera, and then how damning that's been for women around the world. And, and we don't see it, um, not at all, because we don't even see it in our own neighborhood let alone, uh, around the world. So, it's actually gotten worse. It's actually, it's actually become much worse. And, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think what we don't, what, as Christians, what we should recognize the fact that we're, we're ultimately talking about sin, right? We're talking about an attitude of the heart that's not, you know, that, that you can say, go home. It, it, that's, that's because you have this sinful attitude towards the other. Uh, that's not, it's just not Christian, not biblical. And so we think, well, as, oh, well, we, we changed the law a hundred more years ago that says women can vote, therefore everything's okay. Well, you might've changed the law, but you didn't change the heart. Um, uh, it's the same thing with, with my research on racism that I'm doing right now is that I think so many white evangelicals like myself or white Americans like myself thought, oh, well, when we outlawed, when we outlawed slavery, that made everything okay. No, because you didn't get rid of the sin of the heart of, uh, of superiority and of racism. So it's, it's not the same. And, and the same thing then happens with, with men and women. So, um, wow, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. Um, I can only imagine um, the, the element of propheticness of what you're doing um, and I know as a biblical scholar what that means uh, and, and what, what I'm sure you get to see these great 
triumphs in women and, and whatever, but I know also how much harm probably and venom come your way from men. Um, and I just want to let you know that we'll be praying for you and for your work and uh, any, anything else that you want to share with us before, yeah. before we go. Yeah, get involved with CBE. Hop on our website. You can become a volunteer, an intern. We have paid internships. You can get involved in um, all kinds of writing and teaching. We, we just have, there's so much work to do. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and uh, come to one of our conferences. And I'm always available, Mimi at cbeinternational.org. Love to hear from you. Rob, thank you for your important work. We will be praying for you. It was such a delight to meet you in person. Well, by Zoom. We're going to put in the show notes all the some of the some of the links and some of the things there. I want to thank you for listening. I know Vinny and I will be having this conversation uh, on a number of other podcasts as we move forward because it's an important conversation. And I think we've raised a lot of questions that a lot of the listeners are going to go, "Okay, wait a minute, what about this?" Uh, I want to re refer you to my blog on in terms of the biblical text there, there and, and and Mimi's work. So thank you again, Mimi, for everything you're doing, right. and thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.